Good morning, Gateway. You can be seated. So for those that don't know me, my name is John Malella. And no applause? Okay. I have to blame you for that. You got me used to that. And I'm going to be one of the elders here at Gateway, and I'm going to be speaking on prayer and a few other things. And the voice is a little rough this morning, so I'll be drinking water out of my official Gateway mug, which is also available in the, in the lobby today, I hope so. So I just want to welcome everybody. Welcome Gateway, welcome visitors, those of you that are, are checking us out, uh, those of you that are, are maybe traveling, visiting people this week coming up, welcome. I don't think you're here by accident. I don't think there are any accidents. So Pastor Ed and I, we had a conversation recently, and he said, I'd like you to preach on prayer. And honestly, when he said that's the topic that I should talk about, it stirred up all kinds of feelings of inadequacy about my own prayer life. Do I pray enough? Do I even pay attention when I ask God for something that even if he answered, I would notice? And what does God think of my prayers anyway? And I wonder if some of you have the same types of feelings when it comes to prayer. Inadequate? Maybe a little bit of guilt? You know, some of us, maybe we don't have those kinds of feelings, but maybe we've actually, we have a flow of consistency in our prayer, and we don't have guilt or inadequacy. But, you know, we read stories in the Bible, and we read about what God is doing in the rest of the world, and we say, well, why don't I see that kind of stuff? We hear about healings and hundreds and thousands of people coming to know Christ in other parts of the world. And we read this, and I think we get a vague sense that there must be something that we're missing. There must be something that we're not tapping into. So how do we pray more effectively? That's an interesting question. And I think for a lot of us, what that means is, how do I pray so that I get what I want? if we're honest with ourselves. And I thought about, what are some of the things I could talk about this morning, about praying more effectively? And I realized that that might not be the right path for us to take, because we're a people that, don't we like inside information? We like the best deals. All of us this year, we're going to shop at the places that give us the best sales, aren't we? Whether it's online or you actually brave the stores. We like that inside information, and we act on that. And I had a feeling that if I talk about prayer specifically and how to pray effectively, we might look at that as just a set of techniques. We're a practical people. We're pragmatic people. We just want to know sometimes, how do I get this done with the least amount of time and most effectively? So I feel like this morning I need to dig a little deeper, and put prayer in a context. So we're going to look at a passage of the Bible where Jesus tells us what I call the real deal about prayer. And instead of pulling prayer out and talking about it by itself, we're going to look at it in the entire context. So we're going to read John 15, 1 through 17. If you have a Bible, 
I encourage you to take that out. Whether you're old school like me and actually have something made from a tree, or you have electronic devices, it's the same. So John 15, I'm going to read that, starting verse 1. Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. He says, I'm the true vine. My father, he's the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, he can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Let's pray. Lord, every time I come up here, I'm aware of just how weak I am. And you've chosen a very flimsy medium to change us. You've chosen words. And I pray, Lord, that you give these words wings. And Lord, I also pray that as we, we hear the invitation today, Lord, we, that we don't see it as a burden. That we don't see it as one other thing to do among all the other things in our lives that are so overloaded with activity. God, that we actually can see it as an invitation to a different kind of life that you are offering us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the first thing we notice in this passage is that Jesus calls himself the true vine. Now when we think vine, we have to think source or connector. That which is connected to is a vine. If you've read this gospel, this, this biography of Jesus, you know, Jesus has a tendency in this biography to use I am statements. Like he says things like, I am the bread of life. Or he'll say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when he's saying those statements, he's actually echoing something that God said to Moses way back in the day where Moses got his call to free the children of Israel. And he says to God, who do I say is sending me? And basically, God, what's your name? You know what God told him. He said, I am. Jesus is echoing that. And here he says, I am the true vine. I'm the true vine. Now, if he were saying this in our culture, we're not really a vine culture, vine and branch. We have a lot of trees here. So he might say something to us like, I am the trunk and you're the branches. That's how this works. So the vine is the source of nourishment. It's the food source. It's the conduit of life. 
And we learn something here, not only about Jesus, but about our own nature. Jesus is calling himself a vine, and he's addressing human beings as branches. It is because he's telling us that we are essentially connective. Is that a word? It is now. We're connective. We're connectistic. We're connectatorial. We connect. We're made for that. We are creatures that are made to connect. Are the kids in here? No, I can say this. If you don't believe me, even your anatomy gives it away. We're made to connect. That's our nature. Made to connect. And we have the spectacular declaration from Jesus where he says, I am the connection. I am the true vine. I am the one to whom you are to connect to. Now, interestingly, he says, I am the true vine. Does that mean that there are false vines? I think there are a lot of false vines. Where are you getting your nourishment from? Your ultimate, your meaning, as Ed says, your meaning, purpose, and pleasure. You know, if you're getting them, if you've chosen to look for these things apart from Jesus, that's what the Bible calls sin. So I have to ask you today, what vine are you connected to? Where are you connected? Jesus also tells us some things about his father. He says, he's the gardener. If you know anything about gardening, it's labor-intensive, isn't it? It's not something you do every few weeks or months. You need to be out there every day if you have a garden. And Jesus says something about his father. He says he's out there pruning the branches, cutting off the dead ones, and trimming the live ones. Did you notice that the branches are not asking to be trimmed? The gardener is just taking it upon himself to do that. What we learn here is that God reserves the right to interfere in your lives. I'm going to say that again. God reserves the right to interfere in your life. God reserves the right to interrupt your plans. Even today, he reserves that right. And that could be painful. That could be painful. How does that make you feel? I have to clarify. Not only does he reserve the right, Jesus says he will do it. He will do it. Now, what does this look like? Lisa, my wife, I told her I was going to mention the story. She's actually in the back. Uh, She visited my office. I work downtown. And it's one of those typical government offices. It's pretty sterile. I don't even have a window. It's like working in a submarine. So she comes and sees me. And she's looking around the office, and she said, there's nothing alive in here. Of course, then I said, well, what about? (laughs) She said, you need a plant. So I got a little worried about that because, well, I'm not really good with plants, honestly. Uh, Actually, I should say this, living things wilt in my presence. They do. Not good with plants. The last time I grew something and that actually lived, was second grade, we grew lima beans in Dixie Cups. And it actually worked for me. And no exaggeration, you'll never guess what my second grade teacher's name was. Mrs. Lima. No kidding. No kidding. That's the extent of my green thumb. That's it. So I've got this plant, and it's on my desk, and I'm ignoring it because it's just not my thing, not a plant guy, you know. 
So somebody I work with comes in, takes a look at it, and it was really interesting. And it's one of these plants that's got broad leaves, and it really, it's one of those, it's an indestructible, like foolproof plant. Well, I was killing it. So she comes in, it was really interesting. She's a plant person, uh, this coworker of mine. She comes in, she looks at it, and the first thing she does was she takes each leaf in her hand and she dusts it. And she's explained to me what she's doing. She says, they can't breathe with all this dust on them. And then she reaches in with her fingers and she starts to pull out the leaves that had withered and yellowed. And she's explained to me, this is going to strengthen the rest of the plant. I take these out. And then she poked the soil. And that's when she got mad at me. She said, is this sand? I said, yeah, I guess I haven't watered it enough. She says, okay, this is how you water it. And she's showing me this is how, you know, you water plants. You don't water their heads. You water their feet. And she's showing me how to do that. Very gently doing that. Because she's a gardener. Our Father, Jesus says, is a gardener. And he's gardening our lives. He's pruning our lives. Now, I have to say this. If I were the plant, I might get a little bit annoyed. Here's how I might act if I'm the plant. She comes over and starts brushing my leaves. Why are you touching me? Get off me. Or starts plucking out those leaves that are dying. Hey, that hurts. What are you doing? Or it starts poking the soil. Ow! I might react that way if I were the plant and I was able to react that way. But what if the plant was able to understand that the gardener was looking to strengthen the plant so that the plant might flourish and might bear more fruit? I think the plant would have a different attitude toward what's happening. Yes, this hurts. Yes, this is invasive. But it is for my flourishing. It's for my flourishing. You know, we shouldn't be surprised that God uh, is described by Jesus as a gardener. That should not surprise us. In the book of Genesis, you know, Genesis describes God making the cosmos this way. He spoke it into existence. Let there be. Let there be. But when it came to us, to humans, it says he formed us, and he says he planted a garden. So God gets his hands dirty. He gets his hands dirty when he first created us, and he gets his hands dirty as he's nourishing us and nurturing us, just like that first man and woman in the garden. Here's a question. What was the original commandment. Does anybody know this? And, and this could be interactive, right? We're in an auditorium. The first, the first commandment. The very first commandment. Let's go before that. The prime directive that was given to humanity. Be fruitful. It's right there in Genesis. The prime directive. Be fruitful. That's what the first man and woman were given to do. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful. 
if you look at this planet, it seems hardwired for fruitfulness, doesn't it? I was reminded of that this morning as I'm in the bathroom brushing my teeth, and um, (laughs) a spider took the opportunity to come down on its uh, string right in front of me, and I, of course, you know, not used to spiders as I'm brushing my teeth. The planet is hardwired for life. It's hardwired for fruitfulness. I saw this years ago. We visited Howe Caverns up in New York State, and this happens in any cavern. And you, I don't know if I would do it today because I've gotten a little claustrophobic as I've gotten older. So to get down there, you've got to take an elevator. Okay, and you're, you're really in the bowels of the earth. You're like way down there, and it's dark. Thankfully, they have lights. When they first installed electric lights in Howe Caverns, you know what started to happen? Things started to grow. Green things started to grow. And it was kind of surprising. It's like, wait a second, we're so many feet down below the Earth's surface. How is this happening? And scientists discovered that people are bringing spores in on their clothes, and there's water in the air, and with these electric lights, photosynthesis is happening, and plants are actually growing underground. The planet is hardwired for fruitfulness. And so are we. So are we. We are hardwired to want fruitfulness, don't we? Isn't that what drives most of our striving? We want to be fruitful. We want to make a mark, don't we? We want to make a mark. That's what drives us. That's why we get up in the morning and slave all day. We want to see something come out of all that effort. We are hardwired to want to be fruitful. It's in us. It's in us. So how do we get there? How do we get there? I'm going to look at about three things. How do we get to fruitfulness? Do you know where it starts? It starts with getting clean. We need to get clean. You know, Jesus tells his disciples, you're clean because of the word that I sent to you. So if you're connected to Jesus, you're clean. But what if you're not connected to Jesus? You're you're not clean. Jesus used this term about Judas, and you all know the story. Judas was on the outside. Jesus, I follow you, I follow you, I follow you, and there was nothing in here. And Jesus said, referring to Judas in John 13, 11, he said, not all of you are clean. Clean is a metaphor for being rightly related to God through Jesus Christ. Here's what this is like. What is it like to feel clean, to be clean? Okay, I make a prediction right now. Some of you are going to get the flu this year. That's not prophecy. That, <laughs> I realize some, it's going to happen to some of you because you're too busy to get a flu shot. Some of you are going to get the flu. And it's going to be awful. Right? It's going to be... It's horrible. The flu is, oh, that's one of the worst things. But after the first, second, third day, something wonderful is going to happen. You're going to get up in the morning, and you're going to take a shower. And you're going to take off those sick clothes. You're going to take off the ratty sweatpants that you've been wearing for the last three days. You're going to take off that old college sweatshirt that you've been wearing for the last three or four days and you're going to take them and you're going to put them 
in the laundry, and you're going to take a shower, and that's going to be the best shower of the year for you. You're going to be clean. Now, some of you have never experienced this. You have never experienced this. Maybe you've heard the stories. Maybe you've grown up with this. You can experience that today. You can be rightly connected to Jesus today. You can feel clean. You can feel clean. You can take off those sick clothes and be clean. Jesus, and I mean this, he is standing by, ready to scrub you down. He is standing by. All you need to do is say, I want to be clean. You can have that today. That can be yours today. So it begins with being clean. We need to be clean before him. And once we're clean, we need to realize that we're helpless. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do some things. <laughs> no. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nada. You can do nothing. Now, what does he mean? I mean, we all know, does he mean that, well, only Christians are, you know, can do good things? No, that's not what he's saying. We all know people that are not followers of Christ, and some of them are beautiful people. They do beautiful things. After all, we're all made in his image. But I think what he's saying is, apart from him, cut off the vine, all your efforts cannot affect real change. They cannot affect eternal change. They cannot affect kingdom change, which Jesus talks about living in his kingdom under his rule. What does helplessness look like? I thought of something. When we first had our, our firstborn, Zach, when he was born, the kid didn't sleep. And you know, as a new parent, when your child doesn't sleep, what happens? You get miserable. That's just the way it is. And we were told he's got to sleep a certain way because that's less risky. And he couldn't sleep that way. So he, we, we had him sleep however. And we were afraid. The doctor said, well, you know, you increase the risk. But he couldn't sleep any other way. So honestly, we felt helpless. And that started us praying. Remember, this is a sermon kind of about prayer. We started praying out of our helplessness. We were helpless. You know, one of Jesus' earliest followers, he understood this. He said things like, when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. And he said things like, I'm going to boast. I am going to brag about how weak I am. That is really countercultural, isn't that? How many of you go home and have conversations and talk about all the things you can't do? We live in a culture where a culture of resumes Right? Most of you moved here for that, right? Those of you that aren't from here. We, we live in a culture of, you know, and what does a resume do? It talks about all the things that I'm good at. It talks about all the things that I've done. I think it's time as believers in Jesus that we do what I call an unresume. I think it's time that we start cataloging all the things that we cannot do apart from a connection with Christ. I think it's time that we start to be honest and say, I can't be a good parent apart from Christ. I can't be a good husband or wife or son or daughter or student or boss or worker. 
I can't do that apart from Christ. I can make a good show of it. But to be a godly example in those cases, I cannot do it apart from a connection with Christ. That's my unresume. God is looking for our unresume. He's looking for us to realize you can't do that. You were not made to do this on your own. You were not made to do this unconnected to the vine. And then Jesus says something really odd. He says, I want you to abide. Now that's an odd word. We don't really hear that word. What does abide mean? It means stay. It means remain. It means be at home. Make your home. You know, in the next week or so, next week, next few weeks, many of you, like salmon going upstream, you're going to go back to where you came from. You're going to brave the highways and the airports, and you are going to go back to wherever it is. Is it Texas? Is it Pennsylvania? Is it Maryland? Because a lot of you are not from here. It may even be New York. Wherever you're from, you're going to go back there. Now, I had a conversation a few weeks ago, and I'm not going to mention who because I didn't ask their permission first, but I had, had a conversation with some friends, and they mentioned that uh, they've been here about a little bit less than 20 years, and Northern Virginia is still not home to them. When they go back to Texas, that's home. That's home. You know, a lot of you are like that. You live here. You're like me, maybe. You came here for the job, right? Opportunity, education. You've been living here for a while, but your home is somewhere else. Here you reside. Somewhere else you abide. And that's how a lot of us are with Jesus. We know him on some level, right? We reside with him, but he's not where our home is at. He's inviting us today. Make your home here in me. Abide in me. Make your home in me. What an invitation he's given us today. He is not satisfied with just residing. He said, make your home. I want your home to be in me. That's the invitation. Now, a lot of us, we're going to, even next week, we're going to be with people. What, what is home, by the way? Home is where they always have to take you in. Home is where they know you and where you know them. You know, when I get together with my family, you never know what stories are going to come up, right? Isn't that a little scary to you guys? It's a little scary to me because I was one of the little brothers. My oldest brother is 10 years older than me. And sometimes we'll get together on a holiday, and he'll pull stories out that I don't remember and I don't care to remember. So a few years ago, he kind of shocked me. He pulled out this one story. He said, so we were living in an apartment, and um, I'm tiny. I'm about two years old, and I'm running around the apartment uh, with a diaper, of course. I'm, I'm that small, and I'm with my next oldest brother. He's about two years older than me. So I'm about two, and he's about four. and all of a sudden, the apartment's really quiet. If you have little kids, and all of a sudden things get really quiet, go and investigate. That's a smart thing to do. 
So all of a sudden, my oldest brother hears my mother scream. Scream. And mom screamed because she, mom was Sicilian. Okay? I don't know if you know anything. Mom had a temper. Okay. Mom screamed and came running in. And it seems that my oldest brother, older, next older, four-year-old brother and I, we had finger-painted one of the walls. And we didn't use paint. Some of us are afraid to be at home. We're afraid to be at home. Because they know us. Jesus knows you. He knows all the embarrassing stories. And he still invites you. Be at home with him. Abide in him. Remain in him. Make your home in him. That's the invitation. That's the invitation. I have to say for years, I misread this passage. Some translations, it's, it's easy to do that. I always looked at it as, abide in me and I'll abide in you. In other words, that it was conditional. That Jesus is saying, you know, you, you step here and I'll step and meet you there. That's not what it says. It really says, abide in me as I abide in you. Oh, do you know what that means? That means he has already decided to abide in you. If you've connected with Christ, if you've made that step, however you want to just you know, talk about you're saved, you're in the vine, you're connected, and it doesn't matter if it happened five minutes ago or it happened 30 years ago or you don't even remember when it happened. Things happened in your life that you didn't even understand at that time and that it's going to take an entire lifetime, sorry, it's going to take an entire eternity to understand, it's going to take an entire eternity to appreciate. One of those things that happened when you made that connection is Jesus came to live inside of you. He came to abide in you. He's already in you. And we sang about that this morning. He came to live in you. And a lot of times, He's just waiting for us to catch up to that fact. So it's not abide in me, and then I'll, no, it's abide in me as I abide in you. And this is one of the most incredible things, and i got to tell you, sometimes it's hard for me to get a hold of this. God has decided to make his home in us. He has made a sovereign decision to make his home in us, to abide in us and with us. And that's that's mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. And I think even when we, we go to that word in, abide in, we come up against <laughs> the limits of our language. We come up what I, against what I call the, the Donald Trump border fence of language. Because in does not even cover it. It doesn't cover it. But there's no word closer than that. That's how close he has decided to be with us. So he makes us clean And then we realize we're helpless without him. And we learn to abide in him. All right, now we get to prayer. What does prayer look like at this point? Well, what do helpless people do? They ask. They ask. You know, many of us don't do this. We just don't. Jesus' little brother, James, he he wrote a letter that's in our our New Testament. And he he says it like this. He says, you know, 
you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you don't get it because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So we, we swing between two poles. We're either over here where we just don't ask. And why don't we ask? Because we think that God's just not interested, right? Or we think, you know what? I've already asked before and I haven't seen anything happen. Is God really interested in things like my job or anything else, my entertainment? Or we make it all about us. We swing between these two poles. But helpless people need to ask. You know, I'm finally growing in this. You know, I've been a Christian for a while. You know, I'm finally understanding that God wants to be involved in all parts of my life. It's taken me a while to understand this stuff. Like, for example, work. How many of you pray about your work? And I mean specifically, like projects you have to do or conversations you have to have with people. I'm just learning to do this. I have somebody at work that we pray a few times a, a week in, in my office, the one with the dying plant. And we, we actually, we have, we, I say we have church right there in a government office. And we're law enforcement officers. We're decked out in uniform and everything. And we pray and we give the whole day to, to the Lord. And we say, Lord, this project and, and this person, we give them to you. And that's precious. He wants to do that with all parts of our lives. We ask. We have to ask. Now, what do we ask for? And here's the spectacular part. We ask for anything. Anything. And it says he'll give it. Anything? Jesus, can I ask for emotional and, and physical healing? Anything. Jesus, can I ask you for strength to bear up under suffering? Anything. Can I ask you for guidance? Anything. Can I ask you for my neighbors to come to know Christ? Anything. Can I pray for persecuted Christians in other parts of the world? Anything. Can I pray for ISIS to be converted? Anything. Can I pray for you to take hold of our political system and may your kingdom come, Lord, above all, any title, anything. He says, pray anything, ask anything in my name and I will do it. We don't have because we don't ask. And if we do ask, we make it all about ourselves. But he says, ask. We need to start asking big, church. What would this look like as a church if we started to ask big? If we said, God, give us these neighborhoods. Give us these people. Convert them. Use us in their lives. What would that look like if we did that as a church? If we became an abiding church that asked. I think that would be amazing. I think God would honor that prayer. God, give us these people. Use us to change their lives. Anything, he said. Ask me anything. So a couple of practical ideas. How do we abide? I mean, practically, how do we do this day by day? Much time. It takes time. 
it takes time to learn how to walk with, with him like this. You know, it takes uh, a few months to grow a cucumber. How long does it take to grow an oak? It takes a little bit longer. So take time with him. Make time with him. You know, I started, I forget how long ago, trying to get up a little early in the morning to just talk with him, to just talk with him. Hey, this is what I'm going through, and this is what the day looks like. And, and I have to be careful because sometimes my prayer becomes worry. <laughs> no, I need to actually pray and talk to him about that. And start with that. If you don't have that regular time with him, and honestly, if I don't do that, my day unravels. So I'm being totally selfish. And he knows that. He knows that. I'm being selfish. I need this. I need this. My day unravels without him. So do what works for you. Maybe it's late at night. You spend a few minutes. Everyone else is in bed. Talk to him. And can I say this? Be militant about it. Be militant. But spend the time. In the long run, it will be worth every second. I, I promise you that. I really do. promise you that. Now, some of you that are attentive notice that Jesus said, Abide in me and my words. And then ask whatever. So we need to get his words inside of us. The words of the Gospels. The biographies of Jesus. We need to make it a priority to read, to listen to them, to memorize them. However you can get them into you. Whatever it takes. MP3s, <laughs> text. We need to chew on his words like Major League Baseball players chew tobacco. That's the model. The next time you watch a game and you see these guys sitting in the dugout, without the spitting, of course, like a dog gnaws a bone, we need to get those words in us until they become part of us. And we need to become interruptible. We need to become interruptible. Proverbs 16.9 says that man makes plans, but the Lord directs his steps. We need to be open to having our plans interrupted by the gardener as he prunes our lives, he dusts off our leaves, and he makes our lives fruitful. And then we ask whatever we want. Let's do some work with God on this. I'm going to ask you to stand. Because I don't think God is done this morning. I might be done, but I don't think he's finished. So I'm going to guide us through some prayer. And some of you may need to do one-on-one -on -one work with a brother or sister. We're going to have the elders up here available to pray with you before we go into communion. But right now, I want you to take some time. And it's, right now, it's you and God. I'm just going to walk us through a few thoughts. And let's not waste the time. Lord, some of us do not know what it's like to be clean. We don't know what that's like. We want to know that. We want to take off those disgusting sick clothes. We thank you that you are so willing to clean us. You're willing to take those clothes away and give us clean, clean robes. And Lord, some of us are just, we're fearful of the gardener's touch. We're fearful of being that vulnerable to you. 
We're afraid of the pain. We're reluctant to be inconvenienced and be redirected. So, Lord, for us, help us to grow in trust. And, Lord, others of us have big things on our hearts that we want to ask you for. And we have been reluctant to ask you. We do that now. Lord, we recognize that we are helpless. We really are helpless, God. As you said, apart from you, we we can't do anything. But in you, connected to you, all things are possible. So, Lord, we ask you to massage these things and that they become part of us. And help us and, and strengthen us that we can take hold of this invitation to live this kind of life with you. To abide in you as you abide in us. In Jesus' name, amen.